This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. I uh, just wanted to remind everybody that you can go and follow the podcast uh, on my Twitter account. It's at Bobby K. Kraft, B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you can listen to our podcast on anywhere that you uh, get, get podcasts out there. And one more quick thing I want to let everybody know. We are going to be hosting another virtual investor conference coming up August 3rd through the 6th, 2020. Uh, go to our website, conference.snn.network, and you'll get all the information on that. We have a number of companies, keynotes, panels, the, the works, one-on-ones. And yeah, I invite everybody here who's listening to go and, uh, and register and, and come on to, uh, to our, and join us at the event. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, my guest today. It is Lawrence Hamtill. He is the investment advisor at Fortune Financial Advisors. Uh, I've been following Lawrence for a while now, and you know uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna really get into it today. You know, from everything from the inside jokes to uh, really digging in on his investment philosophy and strategy. So, with that, uh, Lawrence, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Robert. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So. You know, look, I, I put it, we're recording this on Thursday. Uh, what's today? Thursday, June 18th. I put out a tweet yesterday asking the Twitterverse if they had any questions for you that really we should dive in. And here I thought, okay, these are going to be like really, you know, we're going to be talking about investment philosophy. And really, I wasn't disappointed in some of the questions. So I figured <laughs> we'd start off by giving the people what they want. Let's answer the questions. We're going one by one here. So, Lawrence, you game? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. All right. So the first question came in from Ian Castle. Uh, by the way, I'm going to call up everybody who, who actually gave these questions in. So thank you for sending them in. Ian writes, you know, what, what is your favorite brand of Marlboros while squatting? Like 27s or lights? I mean, what are we talking about? Uh, I'd have to go with the reds. And full disclosure, I've never actually been a smoker, but, you know, that would be my choice just for style points. For style, I mean, if, if we want to go like full hipster, we go 27s though. Like we can't just, we can't I think, just that's, go right I think that's fair, but the hipsters really squat, you know? Do, I mean, do, I've never know, seen it. I mean, it, there's a lot of chicken legs out there, I guess, you know, it's just mostly, it's mostly upper body. All right. So, might, might be a unicorn type thing there, you know? <laughs> All right. So our next question is from uh, Dean at petty underscore cash. Uh, what up, Dean? And, uh, you know, he's also a fellow lifter as well. So I think you guys, you know, you guys should do a podcast just talking about that. Okay. Um, he writes, how are lifting and investing similar? And, and this is the most important part is, do women prefer guys with abs or big glutes and why? Uh, well, if you ask my wife, she would say that, uh, you know, women really probably prefer men with bigger wallets than, you know, uh, any sort of... Uh, you know, anatomical advantage as far as muscles go. But, uh, you know, in all seriousness, I think there is a, a little bit of an overlap there with weightlifting and investing. They both require a plan. They require uh, feedback, you know, from peers. Uh, they require a lot of discipline. 
and it's a lot of time under tension. You know, it's, it's compounding slowly over time. You don't just keep adding five pounds to the bar each week and all of a sudden you're the strongest man in the world. You know, it's, it's, it's the combination of doing the little things right over a very long period of time and, and avoiding really stupid things. Well, you didn't answer his question. Is it glutes or abs, man? You can't avoid the question. Well, I'd say glutes, man. You can do more with your, with your butt and your legs running and <laughs> jumping and all that than your abs. Although core strength is important. Don't neglect it. This is true. All right. So our next question comes in from at Arco Capital. What up, Peter? Uh, he said, is there any correlation with the drop in your deadlift, uh, deadlift weight and interest rates and or underperformance of value indexes? I feel like I, I should re-ask that. I don't, I don't know if that was good English, but I think you get the point. What's up, Peter? No, uh, the drop in my deadlift is 100% explained by just becoming old. So, you know, there's no other variable there. It's, it's just old age getting the best of me. Are we sure? And, and it has nothing to do with interest rates or underperformance of value indexes? I, mean, I would say those would be spurious correlations for sure. But Peter knows that. Spurious, dude. That's way too big of a word for this podcast. Come on now. All right. Uh, so, so next came in from JD Banker at Dad Invest. What up, JD? Uh, he asked, you know, where do you store your secret cigarette pack? And if so, what brand? This is actually very important because you can hide it in all sorts of places. At undisclosed location where the wife will never find them. It's uh, my secret stash in the house, you know, places that she'd never look. So she does a very good job of finding my old clothes and getting rid of those things that she doesn't like. So, you know, without giving anything too much away. And of course, it'd be the Marlboro Reds for sure. Of course, it'd be the Reds. Like we said, we're not, we're not 27s people here. We're, we're Reds people. So, okay. Exactly. Now, this actually might be the most important question that was sent in. It was from Sean Tuffy at SM Tuffy. Is a hot dog a sandwich? I think we could go on for, forever. Is it? To me, it's more like a bread wrap, you know, because the bun is not really two separate pieces of bread. You know, it's more like a taco shell type thing. So I'm going to have to say it's not a sandwich. Okay, so then the follow-up logical one then is a hot dog a wrap and not a hot, and not a hot dog. I think you've got a better case for that than calling it a sandwich. You know, it's, it's more like a, in its own little universe there, you know, like a hybrid type thing. So another follow-up question to that would be, is it by calling it a hot dog or a dog or a meat wrap, does it make it healthier? psychologically yes it makes it more palatable you know say i'm i'm not eating a piece of crap i'm eating something that's healthy and you know the fact that it's not fully encased and and carbs you know you're actually doing yourself a favor so yeah i'd, I'd say so all right this is good don't worry we have we only have 100 more of these so bear with <laughs> us everybody so uh uh heyman 800 at heyman 800 writes by the way love the uh the avatar yankees logo but that, you know, your question, it, this shouldn't pertain to anybody that has a Yankees logo as their avatar. And, uh, and <laughs> they, they write in, why do girls point and laugh every time I try to lift weights at the gym? Uh, you know, sometimes it is what it is, right? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, hey, man, as a, as a friend of mine, I uh, have not been to the gym with him, so I can't speak to his specific experience. But uh, you know, in my own time and years past, it was always for doing something stupid. So, you know, we'll have to figure out what exactly he's doing in the gym. <laughs> Look, I'm chalking this one up to the fact that they're pointing and laughing because 
they're sad at themselves for not being Yankees fans because that's that should well, be. Well, you know, what's he doing? Is he lifting weights in a judge jersey or what? You know, I mean, who, <laughs> who does that? Well, if you lift weights in a judge jersey, you automatically, you know, you gain an extra couple inches in your bicep. That, that's probably fair. You know, we'd have to figure out who would be the least desirable Yankees uniform to work out in. You know? <laughs> that, okay, that will be a great topic for the next podcast. And, and I, 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 think there's a, I think there's a few out there, that's for sure. Yeah, um, they've had a few few weak players over the years. That's for sure. All right, so next up, uh, John uh, John Bo- John Bovey at Real John Bovey uh, writes: uh, What sector would you allocate completely to for the next ten years, and why is it tobacco? This is actually this this is more on, along the lines of uh, an investing question. Sure, he's a, a fellow uh, tobacco investor, and uh, you know I think we. If you're looking over the next 10 years, there's a strong case to be made that, that there are a lot of things to like about the industry. You know, it's consolidated. There's a lot of pricing power, uh, recession resistant, as we've seen by stockpiling in this most recent crisis. And you look at the broader universe, it's not so much, uh, well, from what do you have to choose? You know, what's out there that's as compelling? And I always point out that as as far back as the French data set goes to the 1920s, there's never been a negative 10-year period for the industry, at least domestically. So, you know, I think, okay, well, a lot of people, when you have these kinds of questions, how would you allocate your money for the next 10 years? You think, how much money can I make? Well, I also think, what do you stand to lose? What could go wrong? And I think tobacco kind of gives you this... uh, sort of middle ground where, you know, with, with cash flows and valuation, you have a chance to make a lot of money, but also because of the nature of the business, the fact that, you know, a lot of people don't want to own it, you stay away from excessive valuations, you have a little risk of a disappointing decade. So, you know, and I've actually written about this before, you can find it on my blog, but, you know, I always have to say tobacco would be my, my go-to if, if I had no other choice, you know, and those are my reasons why. Got it. And we'll, we'll get more into that a little bit later when we go through your investing philosophy and strategy, because I, I definitely want to follow up and get some more knowledge. But we only have two more questions from Twitter. So we're, we're gotcha. let's get through these. And then so what next question is uh, from David Taggart dash PD macro.com at David Taggart. He asks uh, <laughs> if if a law was passed that said you can either deadlift or own tobacco stocks, but not both, which would you choose and why? Definitely tobacco because I've got a substitute good for deadlift. I can squat, you know, so there's no real substitute for tobacco, but I can easily switch out, which, and you could argue too, that squatting is more beneficial with less, you know, uh, potential for injury than deadlift. You know, it's kind of a cop out, but you know, definitely I would part ways with the, the deadlift in favor of the squat and hold my tobacco. Are you sure? Because I don't know if you get as much gains going to a squat then you do a deadlift and that can be pretty important as we get up in age. I think that's true. I mean, you, you know, your grip strength is highly correlated with, uh, you know, longevity and stuff like that. But, you know, in this binary uh, dystopia where I can't have both deadlift and tobacco, you know, I forced to choose, I got to go with my smokes. There we go. All right. So final question. Uh, and thank you everybody again, who sent these questions in. It's from uh, AP 18 IPA Capital at 18 IPA Capital. Uh, they write in, uh, ask, ask Lawrence why he has not locked down a new squat PR, I guess, position or 
personal right. record. Personal record. Oh, personal record. Yeah, what a noob. Okay. Uh, <laughs> how come you have not locked down a new squat personal record during lockdown? I think we answered that in that you really are focused on the deadlift versus the squat. Well, the, the simple reality is, um, like a loser, I didn't invest in a home gym. So I was stuck doing cardio, man, the whole lockdown. I, you can even find it out on Twitter. I, my innovation was to, was to run and then to push my Jeep around the parking lot at the building just to have something to do, you know, because I didn't have any barbell, no dumbbells, and you couldn't find them anywhere. So, you know, my simple excuse is I failed. I didn't plan ahead for, you know, a hundred, once in a hundred year pandemic and have a home gym. Oh, man. Well, you know, uh, I think now, now you know, just in case there are uh, future pandemics, now, we know, <laughs> now, now you know what you really have to prepare for, what's really most important. Exactly. You know, forget, <laughs> forget stuff, uh, stocking food and water. I got to get the, the squat rack set up. That's for sure. And or and or just buy a ton of smoke so that our investments are okay for, for the foreseeable. Exactly. Well, you know what? When currency becomes worthless, you can always barter cigarettes. So. Or should we just tokenize cigarettes at this point? Because I mean, that can also be an ICO for tobacco. I, I think that has legs. Cow, like a cowboy coin type of thing? Yeah, or? like a cow, like a marble or a, yeah, a cowboy <laughs> coin. <laughs> well you know i mean at, at some point you, you could do that with your marlboro rewards points or something like that you know? <laughs> that's how you cash that's how you cash it in to actually yeah exactly it's probably the future yeah. all right well with that th thanks for answering some of these questions these, sure. that, that was so awesome so you know I, let's let's get into it a little bit I, I i'd love to get kind of your background you know really where where did your passion for investing in and maybe even squatting and deadlifting uh, come from yeah, well, I started in the industry in the fall of 2002. Uh, I went to Rockhurst University, which is a local Jesuit university here in Kansas City, and uh, you know had to figure out a way to pay for it. I was studying finance and economics, and after doing a few little odd office jobs, I caught on with a couple of financial planners, and they needed somebody to do modeling, spreadsheets, somebody who's a little more up to speed on on uh, forecasting and, and all these different things, and so. Uh, you know, I just started doing that. And uh, three years later in 2005, I got my series seven, all those different things, started managing other people's money, building portfolios. And, and uh, some of it was by accident. Some of it was, was by design. I mean, I was interested in investing as far back as high school, I had a really influential economics teacher, uh, Mr. Shriver, if he's still out there listening by some chance. And, uh, you know, I just thought, this is uh, this is awesome. I get to talk to people about their future. We get to talk about industries, portfolios, all this stuff, and never look back. So, you know, it's it's been uh, an awesome eighteen years or so in the industry, seeing it from the ground up, and you know, being a financial advisor, or managing uh, you know pretty good sized portfolios, and having lived through a lot of different cycles. Absolutely. I mean, what would you say then? You know, from all that experience, what what, uh, what would you say then ends up being your investing philosophy and your strategy then? Uh, I tend to be a little bit more conservative. Uh, the 2007-2009 cycle was, was a pretty jarring event uh, for somebody who had kind of come in at the tail end of the dot-com bust, which, you know, in retrospect was really kind of a tale of two markets. You know, that was really more about tech and telecom getting destroyed versus you know, most other industries, 2000, 2007, 2009 was everything getting annihilated. And, 
you know, really caught us off guard in terms of our positioning going in. And uh, it really kind of gave me the sense that, especially managing retirement money, um, you got to appreciate the potential downside as, as much as uh, looking ahead to see what kind of returns you can get. And so that's why I've, I've kind of defaulted towards more conservative portfolios, gotten away from a lot of cyclical industries like banks and so forth that don't necessarily control their own destiny, in my opinion, you know, with, with interest rates and things like that. So, you know, I guess in a, in a word, my, my philosophy is like a doctor, you know, first do no harm. Uh, you know, if you manage risks, the returns will take care of themselves, so to speak. Got it. So when, let's say when you're evaluating potential new investment, what, what's some of the criteria that you look at in order to manage some of those risks? Well, we, obviously it's, you start off with the individual's goals and, and means and, and uh, what that person is willing to stomach, uh, what that person's willing to own, um, immediate cash flow needs, some of those, those basic things. And then we walk them through our process and say, you know, is this going to be a fit for you? understanding that uh, it's going to be kind of a different experience in in most cases from uh, being somebody who puts money aside for retirement. Now you're having to draw on that. You know, it's going to be a a different animal as far as relying on your portfolio for income. And this is what you can expect. And, you know, it's not a fit for everybody, but, you know, as a, as an advisor, the client's not just interviewing you, you're interviewing the client, you know, to say, is this going to be a good long-term mutually beneficial relationship and that's something that you know as my business partner Dennis likes to say there's some things that you can learn and other things that you know you can be taught and one thing you definitely have to learn is that you know some people despite what you might think they're not going to be necessarily great clients because they you know everybody has different business models and they don't always they don't always fit yours absolutely I mean you know, you talked about, you know, earlier in, in all of our questions, how you kind of made a name for yourself in some of the research that you put out there on tobacco stocks. Can you explain what that thesis was and, and or is currently? And, um, and then I'm, I'm probably gonna have some follow-ups from there. Sure. Yeah. As, as far as tobacco stocks go, the, the things that I like about it, I pointed out in a tweet um, earlier this week, you can search the feed. Uh, uh, it's, it's kind of like, with the industry, we know it's a melting ice cube. The number of smokers is declining in the U.S. Uh, for sure. It's it's declining a little bit less slowly overseas and emerging markets in Europe and so forth. But we know because of the regulations involved, it's become a very consolidated industry with a lot of pricing power and, and arguably a lot of that is related to the regulations involved. You know, it's very difficult to become a new tobacco company uh, with, for example, the FDA rules for uh, getting your products approved and and all these sorts of things. And and you can kind of look at the market share over time. They've been very consistent for the major players. And I think when you, when you look at that, you look at human nature, it's obviously an addictive product. They have diversified product lines with oral combustible, and, and now some other things. And, and there is an appeal for, the, for nicotine consumption around the world. Now, the nature of how nicotine is consumed is changing a little bit, but it's going to be here for forever, probably. And, and uh, I would rather 
play in an industry where market share is pretty consistent, pricing power is great. You know, what, what other industry besides tobacco can you consistently raise prices above the rate of inflation? I can't think of any, you know, and, and uh, you look historically, as I mentioned before, there's never been a, a negative 10 year uh, period. As far as I can tell, looking at history, you know, it's been through all sorts of cycles, valuations, because a lot of people don't want to own the stock. Valuations are, are very rarely excessive, maybe not ever. You know, I, I don't think they've ever really exceeded, you know, the low 20s as far as multiples go. And one thing that makes a good industry is not just the, um, you know, the fundamentals of it. It's also the fact that it's, it's never going to get overvalued to the point where your future returns are, are diminished. And so, you know, that's why I think it's very hard to come up with, with industries with so many uh, positives, for lack of a better word. No, right. Absolutely. I mean, what, what, would, what, I'm sure you get this question all the time. I'm sure you get it. It's probably annoying to you at this point, but I have to ask, I mean, are, do people, when, when they say about, you know, when it comes to tobacco and addiction qualities to it and just, just all the negative aspects of tobacco, you know, what do you say to those who are, who have that thought process and yet, you know, cause it's not, it's not so much. It sounds like you're supporting the industry itself. You're not a smoker. It's just a matter of, look, I'm just looking objectively at the industry as a stock. Right. I mean, right. No, I think that's an important question. And, and obviously our clients, they, we, we just present the argument for it and they can choose to have it in their portfolios or not. And some people choose not to, and that's perfectly fine. My argument is where do you draw the line? So if you, if you own shares of Walmart or, or some other retailer that sells it, you know, or any other affiliated type industry, you're, you're going to have some exposure to it regardless. And so it, it really doesn't make a lot of sense in my mind, uh, you know, buying shares on the secondary market, how that is necessarily supporting the company. You're not literally giving money to the, the company, uh, in, in other words, they're also giving you money, which you could theoretically use against them if you're opposed to their industry. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to sort of rationalize it. But, uh, you know, really it just boils down to the fact that if your overall goal is to fund your retirement, accomplish your portfolio objectives, you know, this is an industry that has a lot of positive things about it. If you can uh, kind of get over the visceral reaction to the, the product and the downsides, of, of the habit, but you know, people should make an informed decision and, and if they choose not to, that's perfectly fine with us. We'll figure out another way to, to make it work. Absolutely. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, we are, um, you know, this has been, we're in a pandemic. It's been suffice to say, uh, an interesting few months, you know, so I'd love to get your take on everything that we've seen, everything that's gone down, you know, other than, uh, you know, not other than just everything that's gone down really. Yeah, well, I, I think we came into the, uh, you know, let's take a step back and we look at where the market has been, because uh, that's our focus, really. And, you know, 2018 was was kind of a year of multiple compression uh, coming off a big year. And since 2017, the Fed was raising rates. You know, we had saw that big decline in December. And then 2019 was kind of the reflation trade. Multiples expanded, the Fed eased up a little bit. And so we came into 2020 with a, a pretty fully valued market, in my opinion. And I expected 
probably flat to slightly negative, slightly positive returns, just because I thought some of that valuation, that excess return or uh, expansion, I should say, in, in 2019 had to be worked off. Uh, I didn't have a pandemic and a huge crash as part of that thesis, but you know, here we are. Um, it, it is a, a sort of bizarre uh, set of circumstances. You have to ask yourself as an investor, uh, how much of, of the what we saw in late February and March um, related to the virus itself and then the associated uh, economic uh, lockdowns. You know, my personal feeling is that you would have seen um, at least one quarter of, of pretty negative growth regardless of the lockdowns. Uh, it's not clear what's going to happen, you know, as, as we kind of go through the summer and you see some some case counts rising. Uh, it's going to be a, a varied experience across the country, I think. You know, uh, certain areas of the country are going to be more affected than others. So it's going to be kind of a uh, sort of a treacherous uh, path to walk um, over the next few months. Uh, you can debate, you know, whether or not we'll get a vaccine. It, it may not even matter, you know, at the pace that this thing uh, might be spreading. But you know, it seems to me that um, we've just had a gargantuan natural disaster of, you know, almost incomprehensible um, size as far as, you know, the economic magnitude, job losses, lost economic output. Um, but, you know, I, I think so far so so good as far as the economic data are concerned, as far as a rebound might go and whether or not it can be sustained. You know, all eyes are going to be focused on jobless claims and unemployment numbers. And, you know, July is going to be a, a big, uh, big month when some of the um, unemployment benefits kind of roll off the enhanced benefits. So it's, it's going to be an interesting summer, that's for sure. Oh, for sure. I mean, how would you say your, would you say you've, your principles, your investing principles or strategy has changed at all or altered as, as a result of pandemic and you know just just holistically has it changed or is it more like on a case-by-case -case basis when you're dealing with various portfolios yeah i mean it's definitely on a client-by-client -client basis but but overall i would say we were much better prepared for this than 2007 2008 you know we have a, a kind of a tilt towards quality and menvol in a lot of different cases uh, you know, we didn't uh, have a lot of cyclical exposure uh, in, in most cases. And so I think that that's until we kind of get a, a clearer sense of where the economy is heading, you know, we're, we're just kind of staying pat. Um, but one thing that does interest me as far as uh, where we go from here and something that I haven't quite wrapped my head around is what are the next... 10 years going to look like and are they going to look anything like the last 10 years? You know, we haven't had inflation for a while. We've got a lot of money floating around the system. We have depressed commodity prices. We know how poorly energy stocks have done. And uh, I'm starting to think, okay, well, we might be well positioned for the next few months, but what about the next decade? You know, what am I missing here? And uh, it's just hard to think because you look around the world with negative interest rates. Uh, Japan famously has 
has uh, huge uh, debt to GDP ratios and except they still struggle with deflation, you know? So it's, it's just, it, it's kind of um, evading your, your question, but I'm just thinking, okay, we're, I think we're good for the next couple of months, but I don't know if we're going to be good for the next decade because there's a lot of things that could change in a, in a pretty quick order too. Well, let's spitball, you know, uh, you know, I'm not going to let you evade that question. We're going to do a therapy. So we're going to do a financial therapy session <laughs> right now. All right. So 10 years. Okay. Let, let, let's, let's go through what's been inter- internally going on. You alluded to a couple of things. I mean, what else could there be? I mean, we know there's going to be a lot more technological innovation. We know there could potentially be some changes in terms of commercial real estate where people are going to be starting to work from home. It's just trying to really look at all the potential trends that could be happening. I mean, what are, some of the other ones that you've been kind of spitballing? You know, I, I, uh, I, I like to think that the, the future is not going to look too different from the past, but I, and I say that in broad terms, you know, human behavior may not change as far as consumption. And I, I do think, um, for example, that, that fossil fuels are, are still have a large role to play in our uh, economy. You know, it, it's it's sort of hard to wean yourself off of them when they're so cheap like they are now. Uh, you know, even with electric vehicles, I think uh, industry is still highly dependent on uh, fossil fuel consumption for, you know, for their purposes. So, you know, I, I think in some ways, uh, bigger trends will still be in place, but I think you will see at least uh, in the near term, you know, a, a lot of pain in commercial real estate. A lot of people are going to be reluctant to go back and work in big offices, and you have second-order effects on things like uh, office supply companies and cleaning companies. You know, because suddenly they're not necessarily needed. Uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, trash collection companies might benefit because you know they can charge their customers because they're picking up more trash than they otherwise would be. You know, there's little things like that that I that I think might be interesting trends to come out of all of this. Uh, certainly, you know, what, what interests me as a thesis is more private car ownership and less public transit use. Uh, people moving to the suburbs, having to, you know, buy homes and outfit them, you know, that seems to be something that is uh, a sustainable trend coming from all this. Um, you know, again, it, it'll affect different regions um, and different, uh, different orders of magnitude. But, you know, as far as will people ever go back to their offices, I think they will, but maybe not, maybe not as much as they were in the, in the past and certainly not right away. You know, the real estate industry is going to be a little bit different, you know, which uh, there, there are certain sectors of, of real estate, for example, that, that should do just fine and others that'll be hurt. Uh, I would argue maybe self-storage or, or data towers, things like that. They're probably not going to look too different, but, you know, and then we haven't even talked about, um, you know, any, any healthcare facilities. We know what a role that that's played in the pandemic and, and how are those going to change, you know, with, with costs and all the, the, uh, you know, the misery that we saw in, in nursing homes. So those are, I, I guess, to answer your question, I might have opinions on those areas, but I'm not willing to, I think as somebody once said, it's, it's easier to identify the losers from a, from a regime change and something like this than to identify the winners. 
and with that in mind, I think, you know, there's just some places that I wouldn't be comfortable investing for the long run, but you know, when I bet against them, I don't know. I'm just sort of agnostic if that makes sense. hundred percent makes sense. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting because it, it kind of fits what your philosophy is this, you know, really more of a conservative approach. I mean, so for you, I mean, with that in mind, you know, what, what tend to be, especially in times like these, what you want to focus on in, in, in your portfolios. Sure. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. It, I, I think it's, it's just, the whole point is kind of like if you, especially with my client base is mostly retired folks, you know, just erring on the side of caution that you're, you can, they'll forgive you for missing home runs. It's a little less easy to forgive, you know, five or six strikeouts in a row. And of course, you know, there's, there's a, a lot more downside than, you know, just a swing and a miss, so to speak in this business. Does that, I feel like for you, for, with that, with that strategy in mind, it almost makes you sleep better at night. Cause you know, like, okay, I don't have to be one of those firms that's, you know, always showing, you know, a, a crazy win percentage every year. You know, I know, I know that my client base is happy with singles, doubles, you know, even if we just kept it and saying, you know, I, I'm totally cool with being the Ichiro of, of RIAs right. right now. Yeah. And, and I think that there's this, you know, the, in the long run, people gravitate towards those who, who fit their styles or the people that they're going to work the best with, if that makes sense. And, and so in many ways, I'm a reflection of my investor base and they are a reflection of, of my philosophy. And, and many, many of them I've worked with for at least a decade and in some cases longer than that, close to 15 years or more. And, and so it, it's just like they know they've been through now two pretty big down cycles and a lot of noise in between. And uh, it is in the end, a performance driven relationship. I mean, they, they understand the, you know, what we're getting paid to do and they, they are going to hold us accountable, but they're also uh, in my opinion, more appreciative of, you know, not getting, taking a, a lot of risks, so to speak, and making sure that they're uh, hitting their goals with, you know, uh, a commensurate amount of, of risk or volatility than, you know, saying, try to, you know, bat for the fences and, you know, you'll fall on your face nine times out of 10, you know, that, that's not going to be a good, uh, good relationship for us. They know that. For sure. So then my favorite question to ask everybody that I have on here um, to you, Lawrence, what investing experience would you say has impacted you the most in your career? Without a doubt, it was the experience owning some bank stocks in 2007, 2009. You know, uh, this was something that, you know, these centuries old institutions like Lehman Brothers, uh, Goldman Sachs, you know, uh, Washington Mutual, all these different things that we, we know that were just brought to their knees and just watching them, you know, didn't necessarily have positions in all those, but, but, uh, you know, just watching them get, um, just devastated by this, you know, kind of black swan type event. It, it just kind of led me to think, okay, well, maybe I don't have to own all parts of the market. Maybe it's okay just to participate in those areas where I, I think ha I have the most, um, you know, the most fundamental support without taking a huge 
ton of risk as far as the possibility for a, another black swan event to, to just devastate their business models. And so that really sort of keyed my interest in looking at, um, you know, any potential uh, holes in portfolios that, you know, should something like that happen again, you just wouldn't wake up one day and, and find out that, you know, you hold held a bunch of worthless equity. And uh, whether or not that's unfair to bank stocks for, uh, I don't know, it, it just kind of led me to believe that if, uh, unless you're an indexer or, or you just kind of are completely passive, um, you know, maybe you need to have a, a much better understanding that um, when you invest in, in these companies, you know, there's a, a lot of potential and it's not evenly spread across all industries, right? You know, some have much bigger implicit risks than others. And the data show that as reflected in volatility and drawdowns and so forth. And so it just sort of made me um, appreciative when, when talking with clients and building portfolios that, you know, there will be cycles when some of these things that uh, were underweight in portfolios that they'll be doing better. But, you know, there's a reason why we decided to be a little less exposed in those areas. Got it. So would you say at that time, you know, you were more focused on the fundamentals versus understanding the industry as best as you possibly could? Was, was that part of it? Or was it more just, you know, hey, all right, I see these are good fundamentals. You know, it's a bank. What could possibly happen? I mean, is, is right, right. going through your mind? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it's just like, okay, well, we know that it's, a, it's obviously a very cyclical industry. We know how they make money. Um, you know, borrowing and, and lending out and so forth. And I just think, okay, well, what happens when the tide goes out? And it's not really an industry that that's, um, unless they have alternate methods of, uh, you know, earning profits, it, it's kind of hard for them to make money in all but very favorable macro environments. And so, and, and plus you have the embedded leverage and all these different factors. And, and so it's just something that I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try to focus my portfolios on those industries that I know have um, sort of a, a secular tailwind as far as growth goes. And they're not going to be subject to, you know, uh, needing to have a robust macro backdrop to do well. And, uh, you know, never mind the fact that you have, um, you know, uh, kind of a heavy regulatory burden, you know, sort of a lot of different factors, but, you know, that really, that whole experience in 2007, 2009 really forced me to rethink a lot of things and just try to look beyond just the, you know, the fundamentals of each company and, and the industry itself and think, okay, well, what outside the industry, what external forces could come and really cause that to, you know, be a disaster? Absolutely. So my, my next question is actually a really important question because, you know, we've been seeing a lot of some of what's been happening in the markets as a result of um, a lot of new retail investors, you know, opening up Robinhood accounts or Charles Schwab accounts, just all new accounts to get in on the, the action, so to speak, you mm -hmm. know, and, you know, we've seen some, you know, some people have done well and okay. And then we've also seen some really devastating, devastating things. I invite everybody to go listen to um, uh, Tobias Carlisle's uh, recent episode, uh, Value After Hours with Jake Taylor and, and, and Bill Brewster, um, where Bill is sharing his 
family tragedy that happened. And, and I think it's, it's really important to bring um, a spotlight to that. So I ask you, Lawrence, you know, for some of these new investors that are very new to the stock market and trading and just playing with all this crazy volatility that's out there, you know, what advice do you have for them? My advice, uh, first of all, is, is to make sure that you get a lot of opinions, you know, before doing anything, uh, talk to a professional. If you don't have one that you trust is a, maybe a family member or something like that, you know, get as many opinions as you, as you need before you, you start to do anything that you know, it's obviously just like with a car repair or home repair, or anything else, you know, you're going to solicit a bunch of opinions. Investing is obviously, you know, the, the potential, downside is immense, you know, when you're talking about your meager savings and things like that. So, you know, the, the first thing is find somebody that you trust, get a, a lot of uh, advice before you do anything, make sure you know what you're doing. Um, but, you know, uh, obviously, before you start to get into the, the trading and the investments, have a plan, you know, understand that, that uh, it's a long term thing. It's not, it's not, gambling, you know, it's, it's a completely different animal. Uh, you're going to have a hard time understanding your real exposure if you don't understand the nature of options trading and how that works and, and how that, uh, you know, the, the way that these things settle out in your accounts. It's just, you can never get enough advice. Now, the second part is knowing which advice to, to take and, and how to act on that. And that's not always so easy to identify. But, uh, you know, maybe the best thing to do is to move at a very slow pace. And, uh, you know, like I said, first of all, have a plan. Just do things gradually. Don't jump in, you know, and, and, and uh, try, to, try to gain a little bit of experience as you go and, and uh, learn as you go. I mean, uh, having a little hiccup every now and again is inevitable in anybody's investment experience, you know, being human and people make mistakes, but um, yeah, just, just getting a lot of input, a lot of advice, trying to read as much as you can. You know, there's a ton of resources out there. A lot of it's free. You got all the time in the world, you know, don't be in a rush. Just, uh, you know, it's, it's um, I, again, it goes back to the first thing that I, I, one of the first things I said, which is, you know, have an eye on, on the potential rewards, but also, Keep in mind the downside, you know, there's a lot of risk there. I was going to say my main takeaway from my, from our interview today is you can make money with a conservative approach. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to be the day trader and, and going through all, I mean, that can work for you if you do the work and you understand what you're doing and you have a plan, but if that's not your personality and that's not the type of investor, you know, you will be, you know, you can make money with that conservative approach. There, there's a reason why if you look at the data, there's plenty of, of data to support this. You know, you can go look out uh, on our website. There's plenty of blogs about this. Uh, Pim Van Fleet, you know, Paradox Investor on Twitter, he's written a lot about this. You know, there's a reason why uh, stocks with a lower degree of volatility historically have outperformed. You know, it's a human nature type thing. Um, People like to try to get rich quick. You know, it's kind of like the Staples easy button. They want to make up for lost savings or, you know, do whatever to, to try to hit that lottery type stock. And, and in reality, you end up ignoring a lot of the high quality stuff that's 
you know, going to compound over time and the, the valuations usually are, are much less. And we, we know that, uh, uh, it's, it's just, it's a lot easier to lose money than to make money. Absolutely. I mean, look at the end of the day, these trading platforms need to be accountable for the fact that there are new investors coming onto their platforms and starting to trade stocks, whether as a day trader or as an investor. And I think we can all agree they need to do a better job with education and making sure that their platforms are very clear for anybody that's going on there and, you know, trading options or any of these, you know, fancier instruments out there. Yeah, I think that's true. And, um, you know, it, it, there's that balance, you know, between caveat investor and, and what their obligations are. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, we, you've, you can only look out for yourself, right? And, and uh, we owe it to ourselves to educate ourselves and to tap all the resources that we have available and, and uh, you know, really be guarded with how you interact with your money. And uh, it, it's hard to earn. It's easy to lose. Um, you know, just, I think caution is the, is the byword there. Especially in these times. So, so with that, where can my audience go and find everything they need to know about Lawrence Hamtill and your blog? Well, you can go out to our uh, website, which is just fortunefinancialadvisors.com. There's a little tab for the blog. I don't write as much as I used to, but try to do once, uh, you know, every couple of months, take a few deeper dives than in the past. Uh, a lot of research projects there. Uh, happy to respond to any emails or questions if uh, if somebody writes me. Uh, Twitter is just uh, L Hamtil, L H A M T I L. Um, messages there are open, so if people have questions, want to reach out. I'm available. Try to get back to everybody. So that's basically it. Those are the only real platforms that I have. I'm a pretty boring guy, so. I mean, how can you be boring when you're so focused on your deadlifting, squatting, you know, I, the back, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on with you. You're a lot more complicated and interesting than you might, than you give yourself credit for. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, uh, definitely <laughs> a different take from most of what you'll see on Twitter, but uh, whether or not it's uh, nonsense, I'll leave somebody else to judge that. Well, I highly encourage everybody who's listening, please ask him as many questions as you possibly can <laughs> about deadlifting and squatting and, 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 and anything you want, of course. But uh, Lawrence, thank you again, man. I really do appreciate you taking the time to do this. And uh, I look forward to our next chat. This is a lot yeah. of fun. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun.